This week on the New York Public Library podcast, Jane Smiley talks about her new book, Some Luck, a multi-generational saga about an Iowa farming family's shifting fortunes. Smiley is perhaps best known for her Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, A Thousand Acres, an ambitious reimagining of Shakespeare's King Lear. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org and subscribe on iTunes to never miss an episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Books at Noon. Um, It's lovely to have you all here on this slightly rainy day. Um, Today, we have Jane Smiley with us, the author of 14 novels, uh, several books of short stories, young adult books, and also books of nonfiction. Um, She's also the recipient of the Pulitzer Prize and the Penn USA Lifetime Achievement Award. I was way too young for that. I know. I was like, my goodness. Anyway, we're here to talk it's about... It's a California thing. Your life ends at 36. <laughs> Terrible. We're here to talk a little bit about her new book, which she's on tour with right now, called Some Luck. But we are going to talk about other things as well. So welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I wanted to start... Uh, with your most recent novel, and then I wanted to work backward. Um, how did you come up with the title for the trilogy, which is the last hundred years? I don't know. I was probably lamenting something political, and I, and maybe it was a phrase that I said something to myself. But the title was the first thing that came to me before you started writing. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I must have said it. And so I was with a friend of mine named David Francis, who's a writer from uh, Australia and L.A. And I said, so David, I want to write a trilogy called The Last Hundred Years. And he turned and looked at me and he said, don't tell anyone that title because they'll steal it. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's a good review. <laughs> and so that's how I got started. And so then you began writing, and you, I I mean, you decided to begin with what, I mean, how did you decide to choose the year in which you were going to set the novel? Well, my mother was born in 1921, so every... I'm getting, you're on. Oh, talk in. Talk in, okay. My mother was born in 1921, and so... You know, generations have a rhythm kind of depending on when they're born. And I knew I couldn't set it, begin it in 1910 or 1930 because I didn't know enough about that sort of generational rhythm. So I just chose 1920 because it was familiar. And I made the parents uh, similar in age to my grandparents. I get it. I see. And then how did you decide to write a chapter each, you know, each year was a new chapter. Was that... The title told me to do that. And I, so there wasn't a novel you had read before that you admired, no. that you saw that? It was just... And, and did it, it, it must have helped keep the rhythm moving? Or yes. Did, you know, I really wanted to talk about each year, so I really wanted to weave the characters' stories into um, the years as they passed. And that turned out to be quite energizing for me. I did a lot of research, and um, it was always interesting. And I more or less just had to decide what, what was going to happen in that year. And sometimes it was really important stuff, and sometimes it was, not, it was only average routine stuff because 
a novel has to have ups and downs. It can't be all drama all the time or the reader just stops. It's so too overwhelming. So, um, so that's how I decided to do that. Now, with the Langdon family, who's the, the you know, the, the parents, and then they have five children. I'm not going to give away the novel, but I'm wondering, because you have written the trilogy. I mean, mm-hmm. the first... I have. The first volume. According that, to me, maybe not according to my editor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering... Am I finished? Am I finished? <laughs> <laughs> How is it to live... I mean, it's not just one novel, but three, yeah. to live with this family and to watch them grow up Mary, in some cases, I mean, to really, to live the length of life with these people, how is it to then stop and Um, have to say goodbye to... Well, I haven't quite said goodbye, according to Robin, so (laughs) I I don't quite miss him yet. Um, the The first hard part was to get him born, and the last hard part was to kill him off. And, you know, I should have known that was coming. (laughs) Um, but I enjoyed living with them it was sort of like living with your own family you have beefs with um, various things that they do and you want them to do other things but they're off on their own and you really have to follow them and record them but in some ways they're making up their own minds about things the hardest one of the hardest things was because there are five kids and then they all have their own kids some pruning has to take effect. You can't follow every child in every, every generation branch, sure. equally. So some, some I just had to push over to the side. I couldn't, I couldn't not do it. So that was hard because I liked some of those kids that you pushed away. got elbowed aside. Um, the other thing that was interesting to me, what, to me was that when they fell in love, I fell in love. So that my favorite characters aren't necessarily the ones in the family. They're the ones that they got married to. to oh, interesting. And you had to create them. So and... I would send various um, drafts to um, my agent, not for her to read, but for her uh, helpers to read because they were a younger generation. And if they would say... I hate so-and-so. I'd say, yes. (laughs) Yes, let's go with her, you know. And um, so that was really fun. And I really came to be quite fond of several of my characters. Um, And will they live on in another book, in a different... You'll just have to wait and see. Now, what is it about Iowa? Can we talk about Iowa? You, a thousand acres, and then this book takes place... A little further north? No, a little further east. East? A little further southeast, I have to say. I mean, you live there from... There's a clue. There's a clue in the town in the name of Usherton. You can find... You can figure it out if you can figure out the clue. So, go on. Uh, Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I'm... I guess you were you lived there from what 1972 to 96, right? Yeah, I lived there for 24 years. And was it something about... The place, the people—I mean, what what fascinates well, again, you about the Midwest? Once again, I went back there for a rational reason, and that was that I really did think that if I was going to talk about the last hundred years in American culture, um, I would have to talk about food. Food is one of the ways that we define our culture. It's one of the things we depend on, um, and so I wanted to go there and talk about that in Iowa. I could have talked about it. 
in California in the Central Valley, but you know, nobody leaves California. Where they're not going to go anywhere. Um, Why so is that? It becomes Too a nice? book about California, <laughs> right? You know, but I wanted to talk about the whole country, so people in Iowa depart, especially in Frank's generation. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was important to me to have my characters get out of town. And they're so. They, they, I mean. But the, the love of that landscape, the, I mean, is there something particular or not more that it was central in a way and people left that community? It was more that it's central. I mean, it's a beautiful landscape in its way, but it's nothing dramatic. Right. And right. so what is important about it or wonderful about it is secret. It's in the topsoil. Right. right. And... Um, so that's, that's why I went back there. Now, you've written, you know, uh, drama, comedy. I mean, you've written, you know, every sort of fictional genre you've covered. Sex. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> so I'm wondering if, I mean... Funny sex, funny sex, not which is pornographic. Hard to write. But I'm wondering if there's one area uh, or one genre that you felt most comfortable, you know, and some have been more difficult, like the comedy was more difficult or the... I mean, we were, as we were talking, the sort of dark book, even though you were, yeah. you know, was... You were more at ease writing a drama. I mean... Actually, the a, comedy is my favorite, and it was less difficult. But... Comedy has a narrower audience because different people think different things are funny. Right, right. Um, but I quite enjoyed that part. And um, the darker stuff is harder for me psychologically because um, I am not a dark person. Right. And it does... Um, but, you know, I pay attention to... Um, Lady Murasaki, who wrote The Tale of Genji, who says the, the episodes that live the longest are the saddest ones. Oh, and if, if she thought that was true, it must be true. What are you working on now? <laughs> the ending. That's what I'm working on oh, now. No. Okay. I'm and do you have, and you have in your mind the next genre that you may... I'll never tell. <laughs> okay. Um... I was watching a talk that you gave in which you briefly discuss Proust's remembrance of things past. Oh, was this on the BBC? Yeah. Has that been posted? Yeah. Oh, okay. And, and the book... I was uh, the only person in America besides Robert Haas who read every volume. Well, that was... I was wondering, because <laughs> you, you say, which I thought was fascinating, that someone had told you that the sort of the, the educated, the French educated class yeah. all read this book, uh -huh. you know? Um, and I'm wondering... And the we, other woman in, who was doing it, who was English, she said, well, the English-educated class all pretend to read right. this book. <laughs> but what about... All volumes, all volumes. What, what do you think is the American equivalent? Oh, I never thought about that. That's an interesting... I think it varies from region to region. Um, I don't know that there is an American equivalent. So maybe this will be... No, it's not long enough. Robin, can I write seven volumes? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that there is an American equivalent. That's sort of the iconic 
um, American a war. novel yeah. that every educated person must read. I, I can't answer that question. It'd be interesting to ask, though. Yeah, but, I mean, it's it's it is something because I think you're probably right. It's more regional than it mm -hmm. is, even though. Uh, well, I don't know. France is a much smaller country, but it's interesting to think about. I, I also, you wrote a book about Dickens, and you mentioned Trollope mm -hmm. and Austen. And I wondered if you came to these authors as a grown woman, or did you read them as a young adult? Well, and I read Austen and Dickens when I was a child. In seventh grade, we were assigned Oliver Twist. Oliver Twist. I thought it was awful, and I didn't understand why they wouldn't give him a second helping of porridge. <laughs> um, in eighth grade, we read Great Expectations. I thought that was awful, awful too. In ninth grade, they assigned this even longer book called David Copperfield, and I put it off for two weeks. And finally, because I always did my homework on Saturday morning. I started reading it, and I read it in two days, and I thought it was wonderful. And so I felt a lot of fondness for Dickens when I was young. The other book that um, I really loved when I was young was Giants in the Earth, which you wouldn't yeah. have read since, unless you were from Minnesota. <laughs> and what? Someone? Did you? Okay. You have, where'd you go to school? Hunter High School. Oh, well, lucky you. Giants in the Earth was a, was, is a wonderful book, and um, it's absolutely horrifying from beginning to end. Oh, really? Perfect for ninth graders, right? Um, I came to Trollope as an adult, which I think a lot of people do, and um, he's, very, he's very judicious, and, and he's, I call him the king of ambivalence, <laughs> which, is, which I really like. Um, in him. And, and Austin, you know, we never read her in school, which was a, a shame. Right. Um, but I read, I probably read Pride and Prejudice five times when I was a teenager, and I probably read Persuasion three or four times. So I loved Austin when I was a kid. What, and what do you think it was? I mean, these novelists, what is it about them? I mean, has it, have their influence found themselves in your work? Do you find I have it? no idea. That's for the critics to decide. Okay. Yeah. Um, I uh, what was I going to say? I was also watching you being uh, interviewed, and you said, and this is that being a novelist is a learning process. It's not an innate gift, even for Charles Dickens. <laughs> It and was that, a learning process for him. That is quite interesting to understand what it was he had to learn. He had to learn structure. That's what you were he saying, didn't yeah, have yeah. to learn dialogue. He didn't have to learn uh, observation. But he had to learn organization. And everybody has to learn something. But I, I loved, because in the end you say every novelist is something that they have to learn. Every novelist is more of a tortoise than a hare. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted you know you to sort of... Well, Explain that further, if you would. Um, you have to ponder a single idea for a long time. And so you have to be willing to do that. I, I always think of poets as the hares. Poets are that live this life of up and down and up and down and the roller coaster of creation. A novelist just sit down and write that 1,500 words today and then that 1,500 right. words tomorrow. That's good. I like that. Right, right. It's very steadying. And sort of consistent. 
Um, I, there's a couple more questions. I wanted to ask you, get to the silly stuff. I wanted to ask you, <laughs> well, one, you'd said to me, let's talk about the strangest thing that's happened on the book tour. Oh, on the so, book tour. So yes. far. So I, I, I this think is a life, this is a life affirming moment. I was in Washington, D.C. two nights ago at Politics and Prose, and I go to sign books, and a guy comes up to me. He's got a copy of Moo and a copy of the new book, and he says to me, I'm Earl Butts' son. And Earl Butts is the name of the hog in Moo. The hog who... <laughs> the hog who's part of the secret experiment to see how much a hog can eat. Um, and... This experiment has been done. The hog in the real experiment got to 1,200 pounds. And so I said, welcome, you know. And he said his dad loved, his dad is still alive, loved being the, the hog, was, that the hog was named Earl Butts. <laughs> and I said, why was that? And he said, because he was such a kind and sweet hog. <laughs> and I thought, wow, my head is spinning. <laughs> Um, but it was a great moment. He was a very nice guy. and um, What a funny. Isn't that funny? funny? That's hilarious. I, what, if you weren't a writer, what was, I mean, because you love horses particularly. You really love animals. But I, would you if, you, if you hadn't been a novelist, would you have wanted to be a veterinarian? Would you have wanted no, to I be? No, I probably a, would have been an English professor. Because I, I, I love horses, and I, I'm fond of, I, I'm fond of riding, but I don't have any talent in that direction. Um, so I, other than being an English professor specializing in Old Norse and dying with my uh, file cabinet full of bottles, of, empty bottles of booze, I don't know what I would have... There was <laughs> this woman, when I was going to do my dissertation... In Old Norse, I was going to try and apply modern critical theory to some saga or other. And there was this woman uh, in Denmark, I think, who had been supposedly writing the um, absolute definitive analysis of the Icelandic sagas. And then she died, and they opened her filing cabinet, and there was nothing except empty bottles of booze. So that was a, that was a sign unto me that don't go there. Uh, the last question I really want to ask you since we're in the library, you know, what, what you're reading now and what you've read lately that you really love. Well, right now I've just finished volume two of Miklos Bonfi's Transylvanian trilogy. How many have heard of that? I've heard of it. This was yeah. recommend. Nobody. This is good. There was one person in Philadelphia. This was recommended to me by John Guare one day at an Arts and Letters um, dinner. And it was written in the 1930s. Bonfi was a politician and a writer in Budapest, and, but from Transylvania. And um, it's about sort of the parting or the separation of the parts of the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire in the early 20th century is absolutely appropriate to the world that we live in. Is it? Because wow. the politicians are feckless. Um, the, the forests are being divided up and cut oh. down. The landscape is beautiful that he talks about, and wow. he really knows what he's talking about. And I, I've read they were 
counted, they were found wanting, and the third volume is they were divided. It's a it's a wonderful wonderful book. So I highly recommend it. It's a trilogy too. Trilogy. Um, I think we're going to move on to some questions from the audience. I'm going to actually give this lovely woman my mic, and then I will. I always think it's interesting to hear how people write, just the logistics of it. Do you have to start at a certain time? Do the pencils have to be sharpened? What direction do you face? Um, I write on a computer. I, I have to have a Diet Coke, and I don't care what time. Um, but I do, I do it every day. And um, sometimes if I get stuck, I, I go to the barn and ride a horse, and then I usually text myself the solution to whatever it was that was sticking me um, as I'm saddling the horse or driving over there or something. So um, it's, I'm not very ritualized. Um, but I did decide I was going to stop drinking Diet Coke about two weeks ago. And I didn't mind the sleepiness, but I, I did mind the fact that my life was now entirely meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went back to drinking Diet Coke. First of all, if I may, um, I, was, I grew up in the city here in New York, and I read Giants in the Earth. Mm -hmm. And I must say I probably discovered it because it was a wonderful little branch of the New York Public Library that I frequented and didn't know what to read. I, I might have been in junior high school. Mm -hmm. I might have been in junior high, and I just read anything I could. If I liked the first line and the last line, oh, good for I would you. read it. And, it's by O.E. Rovag, as I recall. O.E. Rovag, yeah. Yes, that's right. It's been years. My question to you is, I loved A Thousand Acres. And it's been said... The poor thing. <laughs> and it's been said that you had the idea of Lear in mind. Mm -hmm. How did you... Can you just comment a little bit how you fashioned the story, given the Lear myth? I mean, can you just talk about your writing process? Mm -hmm. Well, I had had Lear, and I wanted to rewrite King Lear for years, um, ever since high school, when I felt that Goneril didn't get to say all she meant. And um, so I, I sort of, and then we had to read Lear over and over. So one time I was in a car coming from Minneapolis to Ames, and it was late winter, it was a very bleak landscape, and I remember saying, oh, I should put that Lear book here. And then sort of came to me. And so I went and I read Lear five more times in a row to keep it in my mind. And then I just sort of fiddled with it. I mean, I knew there couldn't be a war. So I, I made it that a court case or, you know, a, a suit, a lawsuit. But um, it, it, it sort of didn't... I mean, I did the best I could to follow Lear as closely as possible while still making it plausible for the 20th century. I read the Des Moines Register a lot. Uh, this is another question about process. Aside from the title of the trilogy and the chapter headings mm -hmm. being year by year, do you plot out your characters 
index cards or something, you know, th right. this one's going to last this long and this one's going to come in, or is it just a flow that comes to you? On a well, it's basis? a combination. So um, one of the things I remember from when my children were born was that they really were quite distinct and um, decided in sort of who their nature was from day one. I mean, even from moment one. And so I would give these characters characteristics from earliest infancy and then they would have to go into the environment that they lived in and I grew up in a very gossipy family so as soon as they entered into the environment they lived in all their relatives would start talking about them and that furnished an analysis of how they fit in and um, and gave me some access to their inner lives and you know, so it's, it's fascinating to me. I mean, one of the, thing, one of the reasons, I, one of the books I loved growing up was Wuthering Heights. And not the Wuthering Heights that was the movies, but the Wuthering Heights where she followed, she, she, made, she followed the genetic similarities between the first generation and the second generation. And so I would have to say that was probably a bit of an inspiration too. When you write a trilogy, do you assume that your reader will read each in turn? And what about the reader who just starts in the middle or the last book? Well, with every book, every reader's on his own, you know, his or her own. Um, it's the reader's choice to pick it up and read it or not. And I can't influence that. So I have to do it my way, the way that I want to do it, and then hope for the best. But it was, we did round out volume one and, and, and sort of round the beginning of volume two, same with volume two and volume three, so that the books, they might stand alone-ish. Um, but, I mean, I didn't finish, I, you know, if I'd been had it my way, I would have finished book one in the middle of a sentence and started book two uh, with, the, with that sentence. Uh, without even the beginning of the sentence. I was ready to do that. I was ready to do it on a, in an exact moment on a certain day, but that's just me being nerdy, you know? So Robin made me round it out. So eventually, after we're all dead, there'll be the original version in which volume one will end in the middle of a sentence. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you for this. Thank you. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org and subscribe on iTunes to never miss an episode.